Moreover, brethren, I declare to you a gospel which I preach to you, which is all, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, which Messiah died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again in the third day according to the scripture, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Verses 50 through 58. Now this I say, brethren, that the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this corruption is put on, has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death and sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks to God who gives us victory through the Lord Yeshua Messiah. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord bless his reading. Thank you, Kim. Tchia comes from Tchiat HaMetim, which, by the way, uh, has some basic relation to my name, Chaim, which simply means a, uh, a giving of life again. So there you have it. Um, Tchiat HaMetim, by the way, as you may know, uh, is something that is very much uh, rooted in in Judaism, in, um, in Scripture, obviously. Um, and uh, you may know that Orthodox uh, Jews each, each, uh, each day recite what has been called the 13 Articles of Faith, which is something, by the way, that a medieval rabbi by the name of Maimonides put together. And the 13th one states the following, I believe in perfect faith in the resurrection of the dead. And um, when it will be the will of the Creator, blessed be His name, exalted be His remembrance forever and ever. Um, also, the resurrection is mentioned in a number of a number of other times uh, in the prayer book, um, such as the prayer which is called the 18th benediction, the Shmone Esre. Um, the blessing is as follows: Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who enlivens the dead. Now, to give you an example of how deep this is embedded in traditional Judaism. Um, about 30 years ago, Pinchas Lapid, a German Orthodox rabbi, uh, wrote a book entitled The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective, in which he stated that he considers the resurrection of Yeshua to be a historical fact. Think about it. Historical fact. Not that he accepts Yeshua as his Messiah, but, uh, and then in another book, he went on to say, through his crucifixion, Christ has become the savior of the Gentiles. He's right there. But in his parousia, when he comes back again, he will also manifest himself as Israel's Messiah. Close. Close. By the way, he is, he went on to meet his maker and uh, we'll leave the determination with the Almighty. Um, you know, what's really odd, though, is in the Jewish funerals that I've been to, even though that is part of the liturgy, I've, ye I've yet to hear mention of the resurrection. 
Um, and it got me to thinking about the fact that even though um, once a year we talk about the resurrection, I am yet to hear about the resurrection the 364 other weeks, uh, other days, or the 51 other day, uh, weeks. Why is that? Why is that? Um, we will delve into some of that as we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And um, as is the case with, with us in other portions of Scripture, we have hindsight 2020 when it comes to other people. You know, we look at them and say, what's the matter, you? <laughs> um, how come you don't get it? And then at some point we have to step back and recognize the fact that we too really do not get the reality of what the resurrection is about. Well, first of all, um, as you may know, the early believers, uh, the early church for the first 300 years or so celebrated the resurrection of Yeshua as part of Passover week. It was called Pascha, and uh, at some point uh, at the Council of Nicaea, um, it was determined that Passover and the resurrection had to be totally separate in terms of, in terms of timing and scheduling uh, in order to avoid needless amount of Jewish element having to do with, uh, with the teaching of the church, and needless to say, that's part of, a, in, in my mind, a downward trend that took place uh, in a church from that point on. Um, and by the way, just, just to clarify, um, the word Easter does not come from Ishtar, the, the Babylonian or the Canaanite goddess, uh, the goddess of fertility. Um, Easter comes from a different goddess, the Norse or uh, Germanic goddess Istri, uh, that was the goddess of spring and um, also fertility. Um, but part of what happens, folks, is that we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, we... Um, and if you've been around our community for a while, you know that people glom on to uh, apparently pagan influences, <clears throat> which, by the way, everybody has pagan influences of one kind or another. Um, so Christmas is rejected because it was associated with um, a festival named Saturnalia, um, and so, of course, we don't celebrate the birth of Messiah. And, uh, and so Easter is associated with, with this um, Norse or Germanic goddess. And so, therefore, uh, the resurrection on, is on a back corner. And, and I'm not saying that for Yeshua Tzion. Please understand me, folks. I'm saying that is a tendency in our community, the Messianic Jewish community, and in the church as a whole, there's all kinds of other uh, reactions to one thing or another. But over a period of time, we realized that, that the Lord really wasn't too thrilled with us when we took that kind of a perspective, when we threw out the baby with the bathwater. So uh, we determined to see what is the, uh, the meat and throw out the bones or uh, what is the fruit and spit out the seed and whatever metaphor you want to use. So that is why we celebrate uh, Yeshua's coming into the world, his in incarnation. Well, of course, we do it differently. We celebrate his coming on January 11th. You might say, why January 11th? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, so that we would be able to put the appropriate focus and attention on it because during the month of December, everybody and their mother is running around like a chicken with their heads cut off 
And we want to be able to, if we do indeed celebrate Yeshua's coming to the world, we want to be able to give it appropriate attention. And even more so with the resurrection. Um, and by the way, today is not, if you look at the calendar, you will not find the word Yom Atchiyah. That is a Yeshua Tzionism. Uh, we, feel, we feel quite free uh, to set it in, uh, within the constraints as we understand of what to actually took place. And so we celebrate the resurrection um, as the second Shabbat of Passover week. Um, because A, it's appropriate, and the early disciples did that, and also because uh, we want to make sure it's given the proper attention. Um, and remember that the resurrection of Yeshua is described in Romans chapter 8, that Yeshua is the firstborn of those who, the first fruits, rather, of those who rise, rose from the dead. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means simply that Yeshua was the first one to actually rise from the dead and not die again. There have been other resurrections, such as during the time of, of um, Elisha, when he raised a child from the dead. Over a period of time, the child died, died again. So Yeshua is the first fruit of those who slept, those who died, and it's also part of the festival of first fruits during Passover. And by the way, just I hope you have your thinking caps on um, because there are actually two first fruits celebration. There is the first first fruit celebration, and then there is a second first fruit celebration. Okay, you got your arms around that? Um, that simply means that. Um, that barley or omer, from which we get the counting of the omer, uh, barley was the first crop to come up in biblical Israel. And so uh, the Lord commanded Israel in Leviticus 23, from the day after the Shabbat, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Shabbat, and then present an offering new uh, of new grain to the Lord. So the 50th day, or Shavuot, or what the, in Greek is called Pentecost, is the second first fruit, because that is then uh, when Israel would bring the uh, fruits of the wheat and other kinds of crops. So... 50 days apart between the barley and the wheat and everything else. Um, and during that time, the people of Israel were to count. Now, you say, well, what does that look like? Well, um, traditional Judaism uh, developed that into a, tr into a tradition, a custom, as it's done with every, everything else. So, um, if you want to know how to count the Omer properly, by the way, there are all kinds of good websites. Uh, but if, if you do, it simply is at sundown, you pronounce the following blessing. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us concerning the counting of the Omer. And then you say, today is the seventh day, which is one week of the Omer. That is it, counting of the Omer. Now, obviously, there's more to it if you are inclined to be much more observant. And that's the thing about uh, observing the mo'adim or the, the celebrations of the holidays. There's always someone who will be much more observant than you are. So you either come to a point where you say, I'm comfortable with celebrating as the Lord has given me uh, according to Scripture and according to some tradition, but... I'm not going to drive myself mishugi. Not good. So, Yeshua was the first fruits um, of those who rose from the dead. He rose from the dead during Passover week. By the way, you notice I, uh, I discourage us from getting 
uh, tied up in knots around which precise day and what precise time. Um, you can do that if you wish. There are plenty of things to drive us Meshuggi, but it is sufficient to say Yeshua rose from the dead during Passover week, right? right. Okay, good. Um, so, you say, well, uh, that's a fairly basic kind of an issue, isn't it? Yeshua died. We get that. He rose from the dead. We get that as well. Why does Paul need to devote 58 verses trying to persuade these believers in Corinth that Yeshua did, in fact, rise from the dead and that it really mattered? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthian believers. Remember that the Corinthian believers uh, were primarily non-Jewish. They came from a Greek philosophical background, a platonic uh, philosophy that was cooked up by Plato and others. And the basic philosophy was simply that you have a dualism. You have... Uh, the things that are physical, like the body, things you can touch, feel, smell, etc. And then you have the things that, that are non-physical, uh, immaterial, uh, that you can't see with your senses, uh, but are still very much real. You know, For instance, uh, and, and here is where if you were around in the 60s, you really would connect with this love and beauty and truth and so on. Um, things that, that really are real. You know, if you don't have love, you really don't have much of a relationship with people. It is real. It is tangible. Uh, but, but you don't understand it and relate to it using your physical senses. So that's what the Greeks believed. And by the way, some people, uh, Christians, people in the church are very much in that same direction. They emphasize the spiritual, the fact that we're going to see the Lord and, and that the things of this earth grow strangely dim and so on and so forth, very much in that, uh, in that direction of spirituality and, and anti-things that are physical. Uh, it sounds good with one basic problem. Who created the physical world? Did he create the physical world so that we would deny it? And by the way, that, that was one of the uh, uh, typical approaches that the Greeks had to, to this idea of dualism. Either you say the physical doesn't really matter, so and for, in fact that the physical really gets in the way, so I'm going to... Uh, tighten the belt and, and, and I'm going to work extra hard. I will fast and, and I will discipline myself and do all that so that I grab control of the, of the body and uh, so that I grow spiritually. That was one extreme. And by the way, Scripture does not teach that. Even in passage like where Paul says, um, I beat down my body and and uh, bring it into subjection. He's not saying we go on, on, a, on a desert island and fast uh, every day and twice on Sunday. Um, yes, we all focus on the spiritual things. Uh, but God has given us the physical to enjoy. And that, by the way, is the balance that we do get from traditional Judaism. We don't get this ascetic kind of beat down to body um, kind of a notion. So you had those who, who say you discipline the body um, and make sure it doesn't get in the way. And then you had others who said uh, the body really doesn't matter, so you can do whatever you want to do uh, because the, what really matters is the spirit. So, you know, you can eat all you want and become an absolute glutton or... You can fornicate all you want and because that really doesn't matter. That apparently what took place in Corinth, we see in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, that the Corinthian believers thought they were so spiritual 
that they were beyond thinking about what mattered uh, as far as sexual morality goes. And Paul has to say to them, hello, good morning, wake up and smell the coffee. Um, The Lord is is never interested in, in extremes. He is a God of shalom, of balance and wholeness. And so Paul has to communicate with these Corinthian believers that yes, the spirit is what matters the most, but the body and physical things are here. In fact, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, therefore, whatever it is that you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So if you go to Starbucks to have a, to splurge, on a five or six dollar cup of coffee, uh, do it to the glory of God. <laughs> Seriously, you, you come in there and you are available to whatever it is that God wants to do with you, whether you're there or someplace else, out of an attitude of thanksgiving to the Lord. So Paul has to begin with these guys with with the very basics. Now, you may or may not remember that he spent close to two years preaching and teaching in Corinth. That's a lot of time. He didn't spend that much time teaching in any one place with exception of Ephesus. And so he has to come back to them and say in verse 1, Um, I say to you, brothers and sisters, the good news which I proclaim to you, which you received and you took and you stand on it, okay? My impression was that you got what the good news is about. And by the way, remember that the word gospel is Old English, which has to do with uh, God spell or God story or good story. Um. Now, Paul is going to simply say that, that, that the good news, the gospel, is basically two facts, folks. Yeshua died according to Scripture for our sins. He rose again according to Scripture. Not very complicated. And, of course, we want to pile all kinds of things on it because our tendency is to say, you know, this is just died and rose again. Okay, let's move on. No, let's park there. That's parked there, absolutely. Uh, that's the good news. As Paul tells us, it is a power of God to salvation. You don't tweak the good news. You don't improvise. You don't, and with all due respect to some of the charismatic brothers and sisters, you don't need the full gospel. The fact that Yeshua died and rose again, that is the full gospel. Two basic statements. Yeshua died and rose again. Then he goes on to to explain the fact that over 500 people saw the fact that he rose from the dead. But the point simply is nothing can be added to it. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in the polemic letter to the Galatians that if somebody comes along and tweaks and modifies and adds something to it, let them be eternally condemned. That's strong stuff. It's not a gospel at all. It's a perversion. And by the way, it's the same thing um, here in Denver. It's the same thing in, in Israel. It's the same thing in Papua New Guinea. The same good news wherever we are. And part of what happens with us sometimes is that we get enthused about the Jewishness of, the, of, of Yeshua and, and, and we drink it in and we are delighted with it and we want to learn more and more and more. And what do you think happens to the good news? It gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And folks, the Hebraic roots of the faith is not the power of God to salvation. Yes, we want to know. Yes, we want to revel in it. Yes, we celebrate according it. It's not the good news. 
And we sometimes um, get bored with meat and potatoes and we want to go for the, uh, this is a kosher place, but escargot. You get what, what I'm saying. Um, and by the way, he is, he is writing to these guys uh, with uh, using fairly strong language. I want to remind you of the good news I preached, which you received and which you have taken your stand. By this good news you are saved if you hold firmly to the, to the word. You notice that there is an element of doubt Why? Simply because the Corinthian believers are like everybody else. We get tired of the basics of the good news because it doesn't seem to work. And we get tired of waiting for God to do stuff and we want to see some some pizzazz or something else. It is the good news on which we've taken our stand and which we hold firmly. In other words, both hands, both feet. And by the way, Paul himself is saying, you know, this is something that I have received, not directly from the Lord as he talks about other uh, elements of what he has preached, but with the basics that Yeshua died and rose again was what he had received from from day one when he was still blinded and was in the house of uh, Ananias. Basic reality, folks. Yeshua died and rose again. Now, why is it that we glom on to... uh, we typically find it easier to relate to the fact that Yeshua died for our sins. Well, simply because you get up in the morning and by the time you go to bed at night, if you're like me, you have a catalog of sins. Stuff that you screwed up. And on a good day, you might have been able to catch a couple of those and deal with them with the Lord and and say, Lord, uh, please forgive me. Please cleanse me and 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 have a, a sense of restoration. But then before you go to bed, there are probably three or four other things. And so if you're like me, you say, thank you, Lord, that you died and rose again, that, that you died for my sins. Atonement is something that we also don't really understand very well because of the power of God to bring about cleansing and restoration and redemption in our life. Also, a very understated, undertaught truth among fellow believers. But why, think of it, why practically speaking would you think about the resurrection on a given day? With the Early believers, that was front and center. When you read the sermons in the book of Acts, you find 11 times just recorded in the book of Acts sermons where you have the resurrection. You know, that famous sermon on Shavuot and Pentecost when people preached, three times he refers to the resurrection. Then in the temple, twice in one sermon. Then Paul, when he is in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, three times in one, in one message. And by the way, what was the criteria for choosing a 12th apostle in place of Judas? It was someone who had to be there who witnessed the resurrection. And I dare say, in some ways, we are like the Corinthians, like the Greeks. That we relate to to the spiritual and we don't understand what Yeshua's resurrection was all about. 
And these Corinthian believers did not understand, did not want to understand, which is why Paul over and over and over and over again says to them, Yeshua died and rose again physically. In fact, he goes on to sharpen the argument. He says to them, if you do not believe that Yeshua died and rose again, then what you, in essence you are doing is you're believing a lie. That the good book from which we've been preaching that talks about Yeshua's resurrection is a bunch of nonsense. And you can do whatever you want, which is where we get this famous statement, uh, if Yeshua had not been raised from the dead, then eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. Yeah, scripture says eat and drink and uh, eat, drink, for tomorrow you die, with one major caveat, if Yeshua had not been raised from the dead. So again, what part should the resurrection play in our life? Think about it. Is it just another doctrine, another teaching, something we celebrate once a year? Or is there substance to it? Paul puts it this way in Romans 11. The spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you. Excuse me, if this or since the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, again, some of this is way beyond us. We will fully know and understand when we see the Lord. This is part of the mystery. You know, we understand this much. There is this much that we don't understand. It's okay. It's okay to say God's brain is bigger than mine. I hope you all can say that. Somehow, the Holy Spirit that brings about the power of God, practically speaking, was engaged in Yeshua rising from the dead. Do I understand fully how that works? No, I don't. But that's what Scripture tells us, that this Holy Spirit, not just a, an it, a force, but the Spirit of God was actively engaged and involved in raising Yeshua from the dead. And he is with us, with each one of us, who names the name of Yeshua. He is actively involved bringing about or promoting or uh, working God's power in us. And by the way, that's a collaborative effort. As we are responsive, we are being more and more and more changed. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, raised Yeshua from the dead, will give life to our bodies. Now, obviously, in the big, in the full sense of the word, this is referring to the day when we would no longer have aches and pains. The older I get, the more lovely the prospect is. <laughs> when what Scripture says to us is that the Spirit of God, what, what, what the Holy Spirit is doing with us at this point is down payment. You know, if you've purchased a house, purchased a car, you know that you have to put down a deposit to guarantee the fact that you're going to pay the rest. There are a number of places in, in, in the uh, Pauline letters where he speaks about the fact that God has placed the Spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing the full picture that is yet to come. In other words, as good as it is to have the Spirit of God in us, that is, hors of the full meal or, or, or deposit, down payment. 
Each Shabbat, as we recite from Ezekiel 36, God will put his spirit within you and cause you to, to do what? To, work, to, to do his commandments. I hope that all of us have a basic sense that our, our desire to do God's will, our desire to do God's commandments comes not just because it's in our head, but somehow that the Spirit of God is energizing us and moving us in that direction. You see that first Second Corinthians one twenty two, Second Corinthians five five, and Ephesians one thirteen. So somehow, what is taking place within us? the activity of the Spirit of God that, among other things, yells out, Abba, Father. In other words, you have the sense that when we come, when we pray, whether we do it at home, whether we do it here, we have the sense of connect, connection with God Almighty. We know that He is our Heavenly Father. That's because the Holy Spirit is within us. And we want more. I hope that part of your devotional relationship with God is that you ask for God to pour His Spirit on you more and more and more and more. It is never designed to be a one-time deal. It begins with one time. It has to grow and unfold. The scripture tells us that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. What does that, what does that say? This is Romans 8.13. It means that if or as you are being led by the Spirit of God, that is proof positive that you are a son or daughter of God. Now, I don't want to park on the negative too much, but think about the implication. If you're not being led by the Spirit of God, what does that suggest about who you are in relation to, to God? Or to put it positively, it is normal for sons and daughters of God to be led by the Spirit of God. Normal. Anything else is abnormal. So, here... I, I hope you're beginning to follow the thread here. The Spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, raised Yeshua from the dead, and, and He dwells within us and, and gives us a clear grasp of the presence of God and gives us discernment of the will of God and empowers us, especially when we're weak, to do what God wants us to do. And it's especially significant at times when we, are, when we are weak. You know, it's very counterintuitive. Think about it. We, we figure that when we're feeling strong, you know, we, we're got the mojo and, and we can do this, that, and the other, that we can do all kinds of things for God. Actually, you know, those are the times that we actually get in God's way. He has to bonk us on the head and make us sit down and say, okay, we're going to do things my way. And then we learn to depend on the empowering, the anointing of the Spirit. That's hard, isn't it? Isaiah puts it this way. This is what the, the Lord God says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you, ha you would have none of it. So the resurrection was brought about by the Spirit of God at work in Yeshua, somehow raising him from the dead. We have down payment of that in the sense that the Spirit of God is in us and at work in us, to promote the work of God, to give us a greater sense of the presence of God. 
And at some point, all of that would be complete. What we're told in 1 John 3 is that we will be just like Yeshua when we see him face to face. All the junk will just fall off. I find that an incredible prospect. So because of that, and, and by the way, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15. It gets kind of laborious because remember, Paul is a rabbi and he argues like a rabbi and he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to try and convince these Corinthian believers that they are on thin ice when they are minimizing the resurrection. But then he comes to the, to the payoff in verse 15. Thanks be to God he, who gives us the victory through the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. By the way, the, the language there is present in a sense of he keeps on giving us the victory. Now, folks, reality is what it is that you may get up in the morning, you may not feel highly victorious. Or that you may have a week in which you say, oh, this has not been a uh, victorious week. We all have those, okay? That's reality. Part of it is life, part of it is sin, part of it is life. <laughs> part of it is the work of the forces of darkness. Regardless, regardless, the challenge for us is through all of that, we learn to trust God and say, Lord, you are greater than all of this other stuff. And you learn in, to take those baby steps of faith in which you say, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I don't need to know all the details. You do, and I depend on you. And that is part of how God plays out the victory in our life on an ongoing basis. It may not look real pretty on a given moment, but when you look back, you see that the victory is in fact there, that God is in, in fact been working by His Spirit, who is the down payment of the fuller picture that is yet to come. Amen. And remember, it's always, always the case because God does we can do. It is never because we can, because we do, God does. That's backwards. It's always because God does, we can do. God is the giving one who gives us the victory on an ongoing basis. Through the thick and thin, folks, that's reality. And I'm, I'm well aware of the fact that in our congregational mishpacha, we have all kinds of issues. We've had folks who've been sick. We, we have had folks who have been unemployed. I finally got my car after six weeks. Pretty nasty accident. God spared me. The car w wasn't a happy camper. We all go through stuff, and yet, somehow we learn to recognize the fact that God is at work. God is at work. And we learn to recognize that life has to be more about Him than less about us. He gives us the victory through all the stuff, through all of it. He gives us the victory, and we go on from strength to strength. But the Word of God says that if you look back a year or two years or three years, I hope that you can say, I'm a different person now than I was back then. God, the Lord has been at work in me and kicking and screaming, I finally, I'm finally learning to cooperate with Him. And finally learning to receive victory Sometimes it's a small V, but at some point, I know it would be the full V. Well, actually, in God's mind, we'd already have the full V. 
So because we have the victory, Paul then says, therefore, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Now, reality is that this is not a particularly attractive value in our culture, perseverance. You know, it sounds about as, as attractive as uh, a lunch of sawdust. <laughs> you know, you, when you think, when you hear the word persevere, you, you think of someone who is sour looking, who is gritting their teeth, who somehow is saying, we'll get through this. And I suspect we've all been there. That's not perseverance, folks. That's not perseverance. Perseverance comes about because God enables us to persevere. And somehow in the process, we learn to persevere thankfully. Not because we are hot stuff, but because God is giving us the victory. And because the Spirit of God is at work in us, empowering us to do what God has laid out for us to do. In fact, half the time we don't even know what that is. And the Lord says, I'm going to show you. Be steadfast, immovable, unwavering. You don't get blown about by every wind that comes about. And I'm sorry, folks, I'm a skeptic, sometimes a cynic. When I hear all these great and glorious teachings that come down the pike and everybody gets excited and I I pull what few hairs I have left. Um, And my attitude simply is you come back to the meat and potatoes of the word of God. The fact that Yeshua died rose again and we are empowered by the, we, we have cleansing from all the junk, all the sewage that's there sometimes. And we get the empowering from the Spirit of God to do stuff we're, we're not normally designed to do, supernaturally. Immovable. And then this word, always abounding. Fully giving yourself. Uh, uh, what does it mean to abound? It's nice. One of these nice, spiritually sounding words. You know, it, uh, with, with all due respect to King Jimmy here. Um, what does it mean to abound? It means, it means to be fully engaged. Not just to give a few leftovers here and there, but fully engaged. Now you say, you know, who am I? What am I? I'm no big shot. Fully engaged. God has a call for you. God has gifted you. Not about you being cute and clever. It's about God. Second Peter's one three, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. I would be lying if I said to you that every single day I look at that and I and I uh burst out into uh songs of worship. I have it uh where I can see it for the simple reason that there are times I have to say, okay, God, I I don't feel it, but that's what you say. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. That, folks, is what the resurrection is about. That Yeshua rose from the dead, that the Spirit of God raised Yeshua from the dead, that the Spirit of God lives in us, in you and I, and is empowering us to go beyond where we are, to do things that we are not naturally capable of doing. 
in learning to hear from God, learning to take those baby steps and learning to follow God and learning to do the things that are pleasing to him. It's a process, but it's part of what the resurrection is about. The power of God is unleashed in our life. Not so that we would take it and keep it in a bottle, but so that it would overflow and impact those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the simple reality of your word that by your word the heavens were made we thank you Lord God that your word is alive and actively powerful and sharper than two-edged sword thank you Lord God for the transformation you bring about into us as we hear your word as we receive it as we embrace it and apply it Lord God, we pray for each one of us. Lord, you know our skepticism and even our cynicism, Lord, our unbelief. Lord, when we hear your word and are not willing to accept it in full measure, we pray, Lord God, for eyes of faith for each of us. Lord God, to hear the simplicity of your word and to receive it. We thank you, Lord, and praise you for the power of the resurrection that is at work in us through your spirit. Lord, we pray that you open our eyes, Lord God. Open our eyes and give us a new vision of what that looks like. Open our eyes, Lord God, and enable us, Lord, to see the vistas, Lord God, the, the uh, larger picture, Lord, of what you have for us. Teach us, Lord God, to walk by faith and receive the simplicity of the good news. Lord, you're sure that you rose, that you died for our sins and rose again, that we would live accordingly and that your power would not be bottled up within us. Pray for that, Lord, in Yeshua's name.